This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Once again, good morning. Every time we chant the before lecture chant, my mind goes a little blank because I think, this is the Tathagata's teaching (laughs) that I, (laughs) it's coming through me. So it's a big responsibility to sit up here. And um, I want to say about this talk that uh, it's, uh, it's a topic that uh, is close to my heart practice period and practicing together. So I'm, I'm going to talk about that as advertised. But I'm going to go a little bit deep into the weeds <laughs> of Dogen, who is, uh, for those of you who are new, uh, Dogen is the Japanese founder of our particular school of Zen, uh, and he lived about almost 800 years ago. So he's from the medieval Japanese period, um, but he's our ancestor. And uh, he's kind of notoriously difficult to understand, and uh, the deeper I went into the topic of my talk, the uh, I, I got to a point where I felt like I was in a deep cave, and I'd hit a wall, <laughs> and uh, I wanted to get out. Um, so we'll see how this strikes you, but I feel like this is an opportunity for us to unfold this dharma together, so I welcome your questions at the end of this. I mean, I always open, welcome your questions, but this time in particular, and uh, we'll see how it goes. So as we've been saying, in about a month, formally it's October 15th, we're starting what we call a practice period. Here at Inconceivable Joy Temple, we usually call it Austin Zen Center, but the actual name of the temple is Inconceivable Joy Temple. This is our first uh, such endeavor since last fall, so it's been a year. And in fact, my next scheduled talk will be on the first formal day of the practice period. So this is a pep talk in a way. And I'm taking the opportunity to share with you something about what the Japanese call ango, right? We translate that as practice period. The Japanese word is ango. And uh, it's meant to be encouraging, to encourage you, all of you, including new people, <laughs> to take advantage of what is actually a rare opportunity to settle more deeply into practice and practice together with others. So a little bit about this term, practice period or ango. This is commonly This phrase is commonly used in Zen temples, American Zen temples, to refer to a set period of time, and that can vary from a few weeks to a month or two months or three months when the schedule of zazen intensifies and there are more opportunities for longer sitting. So not just the morning and evening usual schedule that we do here and Saturday morning, which uh, we're all enjoying today, but day-long, weekend-long, and uh, actually at the end, week-long retreats. There are more ceremonies. We'll do some of our more complex ceremonies over the next couple of months. And there's more formal teaching other than Dharma talks and study. And I plan to follow the basic format from last year. For those of you who were here last year when Kokyo Henkel was the visiting teacher, we will have the usual weekday zazen. We'll have the usual Saturday program most Saturdays. There'll be some more forms in the Zendo. We kind of kick up our formal practice a little bit. If you think it's already kind of highly formal, there'll be some more bells (laughs) and some more smells and some more bows. We'll have uh, also a somewhat longer service in the morning. Um, One of the things I'd like to do is something we rarely do as a community, which is to chant the names of our ancestors, the men alternating with the women, or we could say the women alternating with the men. And so that will incorporate that as a regular feature of our morning program. And this is a way to remind ourselves of our indebtedness to 2,500 years of uh, individuals who passed on the teaching from Shakyamuni Buddha to us today here in the improbable place of Austin, Texas. There will be an all-day sitting with a visiting teacher offering the Dharma talk, the Dharma sibling of mine from Houston, and that will be on October 22nd. And we'll have formal meals in the Zendo for that retreat. So we'll be returning to our practice 
of, we'll call it mindful eating together in the Zendo. And this is a real opportunity if you haven't experienced it. There'll also be a weekend retreat in November. I hope also led by a visiting teacher. The details are still being worked out about that. So that will be something that would begin Friday night with orientation and go all day Saturday and into Sunday. And on designated Saturdays, we'll also have practice period gatherings. We call them gatherings. And in these gatherings, we share our practice, just the people who are signed up for the practice period. So it's not open to everyone. It's a way of creating some intimacy and trust among those of us who are uh, bearing down and and, uh, intensifying our practice together. And we'll include in these practice uh, gatherings inviting people who are in the practice period to share in a short talk how they came to practice in the first place. So it's sort of your, sometimes it's called your spiritual autobiography. Um, these are called way-seeking mind talks. And you'll, you can volunteer to offer one. Um, and this is a, a kind of a very nice feature of the uh, practice period because we often don't really know much about each other. And we don't hear each other's stories like, why are we here? You know, what brought you here? Oh, yeah, me too. <laughs> it can be very encouraging and very, very touching uh, to hear people's stories. And the practice period will culminate in a week-long retreat, which, as I mentioned, and this retreat is called Rohatsu, the winter retreat. It's traditionally in Zen temples and Zen monasteries the most intense of the year, partly because it's winter, although here in Austin... You know, we don't have eight feet of snow the way they do at, uh, <laughs> at, uh, at Dogen's temple in Japan. But this is a worldwide, it culminates in a worldwide retreat and celebration of Buddha's enlightenment, right, which is traditionally celebrated on December 8th. And there will be a ceremony on the Saturday after we finish Rohatsu that will be open to the whole community. And uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful uh, celebratory occasion. So Buddhists of all persuasions all over the world uh, are on retreat for a week leading up to this celebration, and we will join them. And those of us sitting the whole retreat, uh, whether it's a one-day retreat, a weekend retreat, uh, or the Rohatsu retreat, it begins at 6 in the morning, the way uh, morning zazen usually does during the week, but we'll go to about 9 p.m. daily, and we'll eat all of our meals here. And during, that, during those retreats, we are encouraged not to speak except to chant, and if we have a practice discussion with a teacher, we are also uh, encouraged not to use our phones. (laughs) That's a tough one. Not to read or write. And to basically give up our usual activity during this time and to focus wholeheartedly on practicing with others. So in about a week, I'll be away for a few days next week, but in about a week we'll post a sign-up online You can see the schedule, and you can make commitments that work for you. Almost none of us can do all of this, right? Um, This this schedule is kind of a challenge, right? It's a challenge not uh, just because there's a certain endurance involved, but because it challenges us to think about how we're living our lives. And what I encourage you to do when you see the schedule is to to kind of see if you can discern where your edge is, your edge of comfort or discomfort, and maybe work that edge just a little bit. Don't overdo it. So, for example, if you've never sat an all-day, if you've been sitting a while but you've never sat an all-day sitting, you might sign up for that and see how that goes. Or you might commit to sitting with the community, either in person or online, a certain number of times a week. Or you might take a class. Uh, that's the other thing. I'll be offering a class that will be on Thursday nights starting at 7 or 7.15, and will run for six weeks, and I'll post a separate announcement about that. You can sign up just for the class. You don't have to be in the practice period to take that. If you've sat for a few days before, you might try the week. See how that is, if you can, if you can take the time to do that. Right? You might. <laughs> These are just possibilities. So again, I encourage you to find your edge. You'll probably immediately see it, like, I can't possibly do that. Right? Find your edge and work it and find out who you are beyond your assumptions and certainties. And the only way to do this is to try. Now, most of us with jobs and family and school and travel and lots of activities that we are already committed to, we already have pretty full lives, right? But I want to talk a little bit about where this idea of ango comes from. 
and its intention, and then we can see how we are adapting it here for ourselves. So in a training temple in Japan or one uh, in the United States, such as Tassajara, which is the training temple many of you know for the San Francisco Zen Center, a practice period is 90 days, right? That's the full classic practice period, 90 days. And in that practice period, unless there's an emergency, most participants never leave the, the temple. They never leave, I don't mean the, the room, right? They don't stay in the zendo for 90 days. But they don't leave the compound, right? The confines of the monastery, except in emergencies. And everyone puts down their usual lives and completely dedicates themselves to full-time sitting, ceremony, study, communal work at Tassajara. It's three hours uh, every afternoon because all the food has to be prepared for all the people there. The whole place has to be maintained, so work is definitely part of it. And training in ceremonial forms. So the, the people who are the doans, the ones who ring the bells and beat the drum and all of that, they get a workout. They really are. Uh, they get up earlier than anybody else, uh, and, they get, and they go to bed later than anybody else uh, to accomplish all of these things. And within the already demanding daily schedule, uh, every month for, of the three months, there is a week-long retreat. Right? So this is for monks, <laughs> full-time monks. And during those retreats, there is less work, more sitting, and no talking at all uh, for most people. Right? So it's very silent. It's very contained. And this gives us a chance, or gives them a chance, but also us, to put down our everyday discursive social ways of relating to each other. Right? We don't talk as much. And very few of us who are not living in a monastery can commit to that kind of formal, single-minded practice that monks have done. But they've done it for 2,500 years. So American Zen has adapted the practice period. And in the temple in which I began practicing in North Carolina, which was a non-residential temple with only one priest, the first summer practice period that I did was three weeks. Right? And that seemed like forever <laughs> at the time. Right. I came morning and evening the, every day for that period. Uh, every, it was a five-day weekday schedule. And um, that was really upping my game at the time. I, I, I wasn't coming every morning in particular uh, in those days. And eventually at that temple, 20 years later, uh, they began doing six-week practice periods. And then they even did a 90-day practice period which was, again, adapted, but the, the length of time was 90 days, so it's possible. Meanwhile, here in Austin, we have our practice period not in the summer, but in the fall, which makes a lot of sense given summer in, <laughs> in Austin, and we have an eight-week practice period, so this will take us to December, as we've said. Now, however long or short, the purpose and feeling of a practice period is captured by this Japanese word, which I mentioned at the beginning, the word ango, which literally means peaceful dwelling. Peaceful dwelling. So originally, the ordained monks who followed the Buddha wandered on their own, solitarily, and practiced you know, by themselves. But during the summer rainy season in India, they came together to shelter from the weather and to practice together. And also the Buddha encouraged them not to be traveling on the muddy roads during the rainy season, in part to save the many insects and snakes and worms that were you know, kind of brought forward, brought forth by the rain, right? So to do less harm by not traveling these roads during this period. So in the Buddhist time, the monks would come together in a given place and they would either build little huts, little simple hermitages to live in, and, to, and then they studied and practiced as a group. Or they would shelter in a larger structure. And later, when monastic communities with permanent housing and other facilities were created, monks would arrive at these places to do the retreats. So it was a summer thing, a seasonal thing, and this was, this was transmitted also to China and Japan. That's why it's in the summer even if there isn't a rainy season in Japan in the summer. It's, I gather it's extremely hot and humid. Um, but no matter the climate, that was the tradition, and so it's been carried forward. In Japan, these retreats were considered completely fundamental to deepening understanding, 
to maturing as a practitioner. And as the Zen teacher Shohaku Okamura notes, he says, amongst Dharma age, the stage of practice was counted based on how many times the monk had completed a practice period. So those who had attended a practice period more than five times were called acharyas, uh, which is a kind of low-level teacher, honorific title. And those who had had more than 10 practice periods were called upadhyaya, or osho in Japanese. And these were the ones who became the teachers who could lead others. So without accomplishing this kind of, of practice, this intensified practice, no matter how long you had been wandering as a monk and, and sitting and studying, you couldn't, quote, advance in the ranks. Right? And this is still true today, even at Tassahara, which is Japanese style, but very much adapted. Um, if, this, if you go to Tassahara, your seniority is actually determined this way, how long you've been a monk and how many practice periods you have finished. And your seniority determines where you sit in the zendo, what kind of responsibilities you're given, etc. Right? We don't do that here but just saying how fundamental this was seen uh, in the system of training that goes back right to the Buddha. Now, our ancestor Dogen, whom I mentioned before, wrote an entire essay on this summer ango. It's called ango. (laughs) And he also is very clear about the value of the practice period. He says, this is Dogen, I'm quoting, since the time of the king of the empty eon, right, this means before, basically before creation, right, before the Big Bang, we might say in our way of understanding, there has been no practice higher than this practice of Ango. Dogen says, Buddha ancestors have valued it exclusively, and it is the only thing that has remained free of the confusion caused by demons and deluded people outside the way. Dogen talks like this once in a while. When he talks like this, by the way, in this very judgmental way, it's because he's really wagging his finger at us, right? And trying to, <laughs> trying to make a point. In India, China, and Japan, all descendants of Buddha ancestors have participated in the practice period, but deluded people outside the way have never engaged in it. Obviously, he's trying to rope us in. Because it is the original heart of the single great matter of Buddha ancestors, this teaching of practice period is the content of what is expounded from the morning of the Buddha's attaining of the way until the evening of Parinirvana. So what this means is he's saying this is the just practice period is the entire teaching, Buddha's entire teaching from his enlightenment under the Bodhi tree, right? to his passing from this world at his death. That's what parinirvana is. Dogen goes on. He says, There are five schools of home leavers, monks, in India, but they equally maintain a 90-day summer practice period and without fail practice it and realize the way. And in China, none of the monks in the nine schools, these are all different sects of Buddhism, have ever ignored the summer practice period. So he's really... (laughs) Those who have never participated in the summer practice period in their lifetimes cannot be called Buddha's disciples or monks. Practice period is not only a causal factor, it is itself practice realization. This for him is one word, practice realization. It is itself the fruit of practice. So it is this feeling that I'm trying to generate for myself and for you, <laughs> right? Not a judgmental kind of thing, but just why does he say this? Why is this so important, right? Can we embrace this feeling? And I think the last line really says it. He said, again, Dogen, practice period is not only a causal factor. In other words, it doesn't necessarily produce a particular result, right? It is itself practice realization. It is itself the fruit of practice. So it's not a cause of awakening, but practicing like this expresses what for Dogen was a fundamental teaching, the inseparability of practice and realization. Sometimes it's said we practice, we sit because 
of the Buddha we already are, right? To just take this posture is to express Buddha. So practice period is an aspect of this, a fundamental teaching of Dogen, right? Practice does not lead to realization or make it happen. It is itself enlightenment. Much of the rest of the chapter that he wrote on Ango is taken up with very detailed instructions for the rituals involved. Uh, for example, there's a ceremony to open the, uh, the practice period. We will have such a ceremony. There's another one for closing it. We'll do that too. And other ceremonies along the way. So the chapter on Ango is kind of technical. It's like a, it's like a, a manual, how to run a practice period in a monastery. And it isn't, all of it isn't really totally relevant to what we'll do. But we also have several poems that Dogen wrote when the summer ango in a given year was happening. And he gave them at the beginning or the middle or at the end of the ango, short poems, which were meant to encourage his monks. And I'd like to share a couple of those with you because they give us a feeling for how Dogen taught and what he was trying to accomplish with his monks. So I'm going to start with one um, where the practice period had already run for two months. They were in the last 30 days. And his monks had been bearing down on this daily schedule of practice then for 60 days in a row. And this is what Dogen says. In, in the, he got into the zendo, took the seat, and said this. Pull yourself by your own nose. Summer practice period is for painting a scroll From now on, only 30 days remain. Directly make diligent effort to save your head from fire. Okay, so let's unpack this a little bit. So that first line about pulling yourself by your own nose refers to the image of an ox, you know, with a nose ring, right? And a rope, and the farmer uses this to lead the ox, right? This is how you lead a big ox, by the nose, right? But Dogen is saying, pull your own nose. (laughs) Pull yourself by your own nose, right? So here Dogen is saying, you must apply yourself to yourself rather than get dragged around by me or, you know, Buddha or somebody apart from yourself. Make your own effort. I'll have more to say about this in just a minute. But then he refers to painting. Painting. What does it mean to paint a scroll? Right? I'm sure the people in practice period who are sitting zazen are not sitting there with their easels, you know, painting a scroll. So what could this possibly mean? And this is kind of interesting. And, and actually, Okamura uh, stopped to also notice this phrase. And he says, painting a scroll is a difficult expression to understand. And Okamura suggests possibly this expression has something to do with what Dogen wrote in another chapter called Zazen Shin, the needle, the acupuncture needle of Zazen. This is instructions for how to do Zazen. In that fascicle, Dogen introduced the story of Nanyue polishing a tile. How many people know about this tile polishing story? Some of you will know this story. Okay. All right, so I'll just briefly tell the story. Nanyue visits his disciple, whose name is Matsu, who was always sitting. Right? So this is a guy who's devoted to sitting. You don't have to convince him to do practice, period. Right? And he visited him and said, Oh, great worthy one, <laughs> what are you aiming at in practicing zazen? And the character for aiming at is also the character for painting or creating a picture or creating a diagram or a map. Basso said, his disciple said, I'm aiming at becoming a Buddha. Right? And the story continues with Nanyue, the teacher, picking up a tile, like a roof tile, on the ground and starting to rub it, polish it. So the student says, what are you doing? <laughs> right? You interrupted my zazen and what are you doing? And the master says, well, I'm polishing this tile to make a mirror. And of course, the student says, well, that's not possible. You can't make a mirror out of a tile. And so the teacher retorts, you can't make a Buddha (laughs) by sitting, right? It's like polishing a tile. 
the way Matsu is sitting anyway. You can't do that. So that's the background of the story, and it's the same character in Chinese for polishing, painting, also can mean fabricating or creating something, right? So in his comments on this story about the tile, Dogen reinterprets this character, which is usually translated as aiming at, instead he translated as painting or illustrating, right? And it's the same character as the one in this poem about painting a scroll, right? So there's something about what we do as human beings, our effort as human beings to accomplish something, to make something. Dogen further says, though, we should know Matsu is saying that Zazen is without fail aiming at becoming Buddha. It's always the aiming of becoming Buddha. So he doesn't actually completely reject our effort, right? He's not saying we're mistaken entirely in our effort. We have to make effort. So the question is how do we make effort? How do we understand our effort? So according to Okamura, in this poem, Dogen says that our nothing special day-to-day practice, according to Buddha's teaching during the practice period, is painting Buddha, making Buddha, the same as our zazen. But although Okamura doesn't mention it, it also seems pretty clear to me that this painting or illustrating relates directly to another chapter of Dogen's, which is called Gabyo, or Painted Rice Cakes. And this is the one where I got deep into the cave and thought, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble. So this is a difficult chapter in Dogen, and it's too long to present here, even if I completely understood it, which I don't think I do. Uh, But the central image is a painted rice cake. And Dogen says, a painted rice cake, like the picture of a rice cake, does not satisfy our hunger. We usually take this to mean that real hunger isn't satisfied by fake food or just the representation of food. You know, if we're hungry, we want real food. We don't want somebody to show us a picture of food. And we might conclude that our hunger for the teaching and realizing the truth can't be satisfied with maybe only words or pictures or something like that, right? We want the real thing. But Dogen says that rice cakes are created. They're a human thing. They're confected from elements like rice flour and by our effort, by our making. And he breaks down paintings of mountains and landscapes in the same way, right? We create a landscape using pigments. And he describes the different pigments as, uh, that we use to show mountains or clouds or sky. But he's not rejecting them as mere pictures. He's interested in the ways that we contrive reality, taking things to be stable and real, but actually, you know, we're kind of groping for the thing itself, right? Including ourselves. We are contrived from the five skandhas of our senses, which are in reality empty of an independent existence and completely contingent and impermanent, as well as non-continuous, right? This is another fundamental teaching of all Buddhism. The things that we take as ourselves are not real. And he concludes the chapter by saying, because we have been drawing the painted Buddha on a single scroll, right, which I take to mean creating reality, all the Buddhas are painted Buddhas, and all the painted Buddhas are the Buddhas. Right? This is typical Dogen speak, by the way. Right? But in other words, I think what he's saying is we contrive Buddha for ourselves, but what else can we do? Right? This is what we do. Dogen says we should examine the painted Buddha and the painted cake which is a form Buddha, and which is a mind Dharma. We should work away at investigating this in detail. When we work away at it like this, birth and death, coming and going, are all paintings. Unsurpassed enlightenment itself is a painting. Overall, the Dharma realm and empty space are nothing but paintings. (laughs) So, an ango, he says, is the perfect time to paint a Buddha to aim at Buddha, even though our practice is not mature enough, much less perfect, 
right? He says in the chapter on Ango, and this is how he concludes the chapter, to see a practice period is to see Buddha. To realize a practice period is to realize Buddha. To practice a practice period is to practice Buddha. To hear a practice period is to hear Buddha. And to study a practice period is to study Buddha. And Ango is the right time to realize the identity of Buddha with our effort, our practice, and with this body and mind. So that's one of, <laughs> one of Dogen's poems. Now, though he held practice periods as best he could once he returned from China, he was still in his 20s when he started teaching. It was only in 1247, when he was almost middle-aged, well, he was middle-aged, 47 years old, that he held his first summer ango in the style set out by Chinese monastic regulations. So he brought this from China with him to Japan. At that point, he had about six more years to live. He died at 53. At the start of that ango in 1247, Dogen spoke the following poem, and this is the last thing I want to talk about. This one is another poetic masterpiece which we can just sit with. (laughs) This is what he says. Digging a hole in the sky, leveling the earth, and constructing a demon's cave, the monk's bad-smelling waters splatter, pouring over the heavens. Donkeys and cows mixed together with Buddhas and ancestors. And then he says, pull yourself by your nose. Right? So he's talking, he uses the same metaphor of making your own effort. I also will come back to the head on fire thing. That's another, uh, I didn't finish the discussion of that. So this poem also mentions pull your own nose. Right? Use your own effort. Okamura goes a little further with this. He says that this expression, pull yourself by your own nose, actually comes from Dogen's Chinese teacher, right? So he's carrying with him from China this uh, expression of Zen from China, and he was always tried to maintain this uh, teaching of his teacher. His teacher's name was Ru Jing. So Ru Jing was contemplating the famous 10 ox herding pictures there on the stairs going up to the second floor here if you want to look at them later. And that's a pictorial story, right? It's a picture, it's representation of a person who is searching for an ox, right? Which is a metaphor for searching for a path, a way of contentment and freedom from suffering, right? How to live. And one of the images has the ox herd piercing the nose of the ox so that he can lead and control it. The ox represents our minds in this storytelling. Rujing commented on the eighth of the ten pictures, which is titled Forgetting Both Person and Ox, right, in which there's nothing left but a round circle, an enso, which is empty, right, in the middle. And the point of this picture is after much struggle and effort, both the ox, what we think of as our mind, which pulls us around, and the person who is trying to control this separate thing, they have disappeared into emptiness. Okamura, again, notes that Rujing commented, one's own nostril is drilled by the self, <laughs> and one's own rope is pulled by the self. So we think we're you know, aiming at some self, some mind that's somehow separate, but it's not, right? It's one thing, and that's what this picture is showing us. So what we are seeking is never apart from us. We only need to realize it. And this is another aspect, says Dogen, of Ango. The title of this poem that he he gives is Lifting the Ancient Koan. And it's interpreted by Okamura as follows. Lifting the Ancient Koan. So we lift ourselves by our noses and we practice the ancient koan. The 90-day summer practice period is an ancient koan, says Okamura, giving us by the Buddha, in which each monk is studying and practicing using their karmic self, this one, in order to study the self that is empty and interconnected with all beings. Another way to understand this title is that the empty and interconnected self pulls and trains the self-centered karmic self. 
So digging a hole in the sky, leveling the earth, and constructing a demon's cave, the monks' bad-smelling waters splatter, pouring over the heavens. So Okamura again points to the way practitioners work the world, which he says is symbolized by the extremes of heaven and earth, and make a demon's cave. And while this expression, demon or demon's cave, usually refers to you know, the suffering that we create by making discriminating judgments, Okamura flips this usual meaning in a commentary which uses this expression to mean that a monk who is in the demon's cave is actually living in non-discrimination, not caught by anything. Right? And I'm, Okamura doesn't mention this, but I, I also was reminded of another quote which seems related from Ru Jing, Dogen's master. And Dogen actually quotes his master at the start of Ango, the chapter called Ango. And this is what Ru Jing said. Stack up your bones in an empty field. Gouge out a cave in empty sky. Break through the barrier of dualism and splash in a bucket of pitch black lacquer. Right. So Dogen says that his teacher spoke these lines at the start of a summer ango in China. Right. And it's Ru Jing who called the sutras and monastic regula- regulations bad-smelling waters, right? all these rules that monks are supposed to live by and that we try to live by, right? Step into the zendo, take two steps, bow, go to your seat, bow, turn around, bow, right? <laughs> bad-smelling waters, he says, right? And he calls Shakyamuni, who gave us these rules or some of these rules, that old bandit, Shakyamuni, These stinky waters permeate the heavens. They are the guidelines for us deluded persons to transcend our limited understanding, our limited bodies, and realize the true self and true human life. A bucket of black lacquer, a dark cave, refer to undifferentiated reality that is penetrated by practice and realization. So Dogen makes a statement after this poem. He says, tell me, How shall we today lift up the ancient koan from 2,000 years ago? And he paused, and then he said this mysterious thing. A copper head and an iron brow keep practicing. A wooden ladle and a clump of soil clap their hands and laugh. That's how he concluded his encouraging words. Now, a copper head and an iron brow or an iron person, is a way that Zen talk refers to a mature practitioner. An iron person, or an iron man, because they were so often men, but an iron person is a person who doesn't give up, right? who keeps practicing. A wooden ladle shows up a lot in the koan literature, but one meaning is just something simple and useful and fit for its purpose, like our bodies and minds. And a clump of soil is also a lump of flesh, right, our bodies. So how extraordinary that they laugh and clap their hands as we practice. But Dogen also invents a Buddha that he calls broken ladle Buddha, right? And he says, broken ladle Buddha is worthy of offerings. And he says that this Buddha's country is called clump of earth. This is the Buddha who is all of us, right? We want to be the iron person, but we're broken ladles, (laughs) or we see ourselves that way, right? But this is the Buddha who is all of us, and this is Buddha's realm, our realm. So come and paint a scroll during the Ango. Dogen concludes, we practice as if to save our heads from fire. And he uses this phrase several times in various teachings, right? like as if your head's on fire, as if to save your head from fire, right, with that kind of urgency. Wholeheartedly practice and aim at Buddha, and you'll have company. Thank you very much. Now let's see how thoroughly confused (laughs) you might be. Are there any questions or comments? You artists out there, I was thinking of you. I don't.
know we have some artists in the group. Or any questions about practice period? Practical questions are also welcome. Yes, Kat. Um, I'm gonna. I'm pretty confused. Good. So. <laughs> Join the club. Um, but something that kept coming to my mind in the stories is yep. Plato's allegory of the cave, mm. and trying to wade through everything that you just said and make practical sense of it for myself. I think one thing that you know, like, the, the picture of the food is like the shadow, you know what I mean? And then experiencing life is turning around and realizing there's actually something more there in real life. That's how my mind makes sense of it. But something that is confusing to me that maybe you, maybe if I can get it out with clarity, is like, what is the difference between, okay, when Dogen said, um, Actually, when you're in the demon's cave, you're in the undifferentiated space. Like, that's confusing to me. And also, what is the difference between duality and differentiating a picture of food versus food? Does that... Yeah, those are all the, the questions, exactly the questions that come up. And I think that, for the most part... Many of the monks that were practicing with Dogen were having, like, what is he talking about? <laughs> There's some phrases that recur that, you know, you start to pick up on, like, practices if your head was on fire. That's said during a particular ceremony during Ango, right? And so when it appears in other places when you're studying, you, you start to make connections. But this takes years, right? It takes a long time. So I'm pretty sure that most of the monks were also... I'm like, uh, and Dogen was highly literate. He knew, he learned Chinese, classical Chinese as a child. Some people think of him as a kind of child genius, you know. He was writing Chinese poetry when he was, you know, tiny. Um, so it's not a very accessible teaching in some ways, right? But to your questions, it's Zen prizes simplicity and directness most of the time, right? So like uncontrived the uncontrived reality, not contriving a reality for the self, right? not making, making up our own reality, not, uh, what are some of the ways that we talk about this? You know, don't, um, don't make up standards on your own, right? All this sort of thing is, these phrases recur and recur. But Dogen is also usually trying to mess with our understanding, even of Zen, even of what, think, what seem to be fundamental teachings in Zen or in Buddhism generally. So he'll just turn things upside down and then inside out, and he'll call black white, and he'll call white black. And, but all of it is meant to shake up our ideas about things, including even about the teaching. So um, there he writes a, a chapter called One Bright Pearl, right? The entire universe in 10 directions is one bright pearl. It's this one reality bright, reflective, clear, right? You think, yes, yes, light, right? right? But darkness in Buddhism is not necessarily a bad thing. Dark, there's light and there's dark, but they're not really opposite each other. They work together, right? When one side is illuminated, says Genjo Khan, the other side is dark. You can't have one without the other, right? And darkness is a metaphor, actually, for non-duality, even though it would appear to be obscure and scary, right? So the demon's cave, you could say, yeah, it's a terrible place where our delusions hang out, and we hang out with our delusions, like in Plato's cave, right? We look at the shadows on the wall, and we think that's reality. But he's trying to get us to be at home <laughs> in darkness, right? Rather than to fear it or avoid it, and to understand it differently. So then the light is our light of our consciousness, that illuminates everything. They go together, though. They go together. So that's just one possible take. I'm sure somebody else who's sitting here, they have a different answer. Right. Thank you. Yes, Rich? Um, I just recall that um, Tokyo Hentel came here a while back and did a Genzo way on that classical about painting a rice cake. And um, as I recall, he talked about 
you know, painting a, right, a painted rice cake doesn't satisfy was was his way of was Dogen's way of talking about delusions, but that even if you your delusions aren't really satisfying, they are they are a necessary part of right. they are necessary. Yeah, you have to have the you have to work with those. You have to practice with those, just like you may have to go into the demon's cave. You may have to practice with your delusions. I can't remember if it's if it's Kokyo or if it's Dogen who says a painted rice cake satisfies painted hunger. <laughs> <laughs> and when you think about that, it's like we think we are we need something, but one of the teachings is we there's nothing that we lack, right? We just don't know it. So we go grasping for these things. We we know for sutras and for meetings with a teacher and you know we we sow a rakasu and we get ordained and we do all these things, right? And, and we never lacked anything from the beginning, but we, we still do all these things. So these are contrivances, but Dogen is not rejecting them. Right? He's not just saying, just be natural. <laughs> just, just realize that you're fine, just the way you are, right? It's, we, need, we need effort. So he doesn't reject our effort, even what, it, what is our misguided, mis, you know, based on delusion. Without our delusions, we wouldn't practice either. Saw hand somewhere. Yeah. So um, it may be this uh, this uh, putrid water is uh, form, but I, I I have a sense I've, I've grappled with this, and it's it's even really brought me some nice moments of deeper understanding and acceptance, uh, even to a really strong degree in one one Shanti retreat, but. Uh, you're sitting with other people, and it's silent, it's a, it's a sashim. It seems that there is kind of a psychic background noise of people's uh, emotional and uh, ideational. It seems like this would be the last place I'd want to go meditate. <laughs> and, and, and there's a way of just kind of, okay, well, here's, this is, is it, don't it's nice, and the, the, the great pristine silence and the depth is always there, but you know, it's kind of like we're stepping into this muddy soup of people in a zendo, even at Tassahara, I mean, granted for the work period, that was one of the messiest environments <laughs> kind of ever been in, in terms of the energetics. San Francisco's in San Francisco, it was kind of nice for me. But I don't know, is there, is, there, is there a component of that, or is it just my schizoid, you know, psychology that somehow retreats from all of these people with all this going on? All, it, it doesn't retreat, it just, it's a lot. Yeah, so the question is, you know, sitting in silence without distraction from, but, but there is this background hum, you know, of everybody around you, even if they're not talking. And then there are the things that people do because they can't help it, like their stomachs growl, where like, I, I remember somebody complaining in one retreat I was in that you know like this person sitting next to them chewed really noisily and they thought they were going to go crazy. <laughs> like they had to eat another meal with this person, right? So we get to see our, our judgment. It's a kind of judgment coming up. It's not that it's not based in phenomena that are actually happening, but we get to see it. I would so prefer if we could shut off everybody's psychic noise Right, so so I could I could be peaceful, <laughs> right? Um, and so it's a chance to see that, and it's also a chance that you know, like that person or those people who are driving you nuts, will come around in silence at a certain point, and they will offer you food, and then you get to see them in a different way. You get to see their sincerity. You get to see their compassion. You get to experience gratitude for them. Those noisy, mud splattered people. Right, who are in the soup with you, and also you don't know, like what it, what your background hum is that's driving them crazy, right? So it is a great practice also of compassion to do this together and supporting everyone, and to know that we are all in this together, right? We are all in this together. It, it certainly is good if there's like a negative emotional response to it, but wouldn't it just be? better to have solo practice as the primary and have this as a wonderful gathering. It's 
hard to understand how it's going to be the group as the expression of practice, especially when it's all together. No, that's what the Buddha left us with, like just for three months out of 12, right? Everybody comes together, the rest of the time they're wandering. Yeah. Of course, you know, in most monasteries, you're still, you're living a community all the time, and then there's an intensifying of that during a practice period, and people will join you from, quote, outside, right? They'll come just for the practice period, and then they'll leave. Um, and Dogen has a whole other poem about that, the people who arrive, and then they pack up their stuff and they go. They go and they continue traveling and visiting teachers, and so there's this circulation, right? This, and it's a modulation. I don't think we could be in practice period 365 days a year. Right? It would be too much to sustain on a variety of ways. Um, but try to find the encouragement of, of being with other people. And, and here, you know, in the way we do practice periods, we talk, we do talk. We have these gatherings, there are opportunities to be social, we have classes, right? So it isn't all just facing the wall with other people, you know. Um, and then, you know, the other thing is, your edge may be doing an all-day sitting. Right? Doing, doing an all-day sitting maybe and, and practicing more on your own maybe more what works for you. And that's true of all of us too. You know? So try it out, see what happens. For some people it's like a bliss realm to be in practice period. And for others it's complete torture and they can't wait to. Some people don't make it through. <laughs> people have left, walked out of Tassajara. Right, 14 miles of dirt road, up, 5,000 feet, back down. They have left in the middle of the night. They have done the, they have done the, the whole startup, right, of practice period, including the ceremonies, and then during breakfast they pack and they flee. Right? It's, it's, it's a thing, right? So, yeah, it's a, but try it out, try it out. Pat. Oh, my question is not simple, but I just uh, was surprised at the use of the word acharya to mean low-level teacher or yeah. even someone who wasn't qualified to be a teacher. Is that just Tassara or is that Zen? Because in the other, in Tibetan and all, all of our ans women ancestors, women are ancestors acharyas, are called acharya. And yeah, I know that um, Pema Chodron is an acharya, acharya and yeah. I, I just wondered. Yeah, so uh, acharya is a Sanskrit term. Right, that's a Sanskrit term, and, it, and for the women ancestors, that's what we call them, acharya, because they didn't have the monastic rank that the men got since the men inherited the temples and got that power. So in Japanese, it's ajari, that's how you say it in Japanese, and in some sects of Buddhism, to be an ajari is to be the most senior person in that sect. Certain... Um, you know, the marathon monks, have you ever seen documentaries on these guys who like run, you know, for like hundreds and thousands of kilometers, making this circuit of temples, you know, that's what they, it's, it's like this endurance practice. If they complete all of their training, they're called ajari. So it's a high rank, right? In Zen, daio sho means like great teacher or, or great priest, and osho is a priest. So this is just a, an adaptation of, a, of an honorific term to a particular uh, system of medieval Japan. But when we use the term acharya, and it is used in, uh, for Tibetan teachers as well, um, it's not, it doesn't mean lesser in any way. It just, it's, it's, yeah. okay. So with women, we call, we call them acharyas because we can't call them, most of them, we can't call them osho. They didn't have that formal rank. It's a way of honoring them with a different title. Jose. Um, I'm a person that likes to think in terms of pictures, uh, and today's talk made me feel like those pictures were very paper thin. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, but at the same time, uh, we need to paint those scrolls to sort of pull ourselves. And yet, when we paint those scrolls, they, they pull us and we push the scroll and they sort of feed onto each other. Uh, is that how I should think of practice period? I think you could think of it that way. I mean, you could try reading this this thing called the Gabio for this whole, you know, expounding of painting, right? Of the of the practice of painting. But you know, like, I'm not an artist, but I once tried to make a clay representation in a class on you know making uh, making things with clay that didn't involve throwing, right? But instead, built hand building, and I decided I wanted to make a Bodhidharma figure. And um, partly because, you know, Bodhidharma, he's out there, he's kind of rough, 
You know, I thought, he doesn't have to look really good. He didn't have to look good. <laughs> <right. laughs> so maybe it's not beyond my capabilities. But I realized that I was, I had to create an idea in my mind and then realize it with my hands, right? And mold it and shape it. And there's an aspect of this fascicle on painted rice cakes where uh, there's a story where a, a monk asks a teacher, you know, is that Buddha? Isn't that just clay? Isn't that just a lump of clay in a, in a you know, temporary shrine or something? And the teacher agrees, yes, it's just, you know, a lump of clay, but it's also Buddha, right? So there's something about this interchange of our creativity, our ideas. We have to, we have, to have an idea, right? An idea of enlightenment, an idea of practice, an idea of compassion, an idea of the teaching. Why would we be here <laughs> otherwise? Right? That's why we have images in the temple. Right? It, they're supposed to encourage us and they also express something about this truth. So Dogen is saying this is about our effort and our imagination, but he goes further. He always goes a little, he always pushes it just a little further. And he's saying, really, is there a difference right, between this painted Buddha and some real Buddha? I mean, Buddha lived 2,500 years ago, he's gone. You could, you could think of it that way, too. But like you, I find pictures a lot more helpful sometimes. I'm a big word person, but sometimes I, let me see the diagram. Right? And that's, you know. And if you paint a landscape, you're entering the landscape as you paint it. Right? You're creating space. <laughs> so these are all just things to play with as you, as you uh, enter this period. What's your scroll? How are you going to paint it? Uh, I have a question that's, that was inspired by your answer to Rich's uh, comment, Rich's question. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that delusions are what help us to practice and that we, kind of, we wouldn't practice without them, that we kind of need our delusions in some way. And I, I feel like what's been really alive for me in terms of my practice the last couple months has been just kind of how difficult it is, uh, like accepting the imperfections that I have and feeling kind of annoyed by them and a little bit ashamed at times at the, yeah, the subtle patterns I have that can sometimes harm people. And yeah, I feel like I don't want these imperfections. <laughs> and I don't see them as part of my wholeness, and they seem like something, yeah, I want to get rid of, and I have a lot of trouble uh, accepting these parts of myself and being compassionate with that. Welcome to the club. Um, yeah, we all, and, and I think the other thing about being a sincere practitioner, you know, is that you want, it's like this curative fantasy of Zen or Buddhism, right? It's going to fix me. I'm going to be a perfect bodhisattva, and I'm never going to harm anybody, right? You know, and I'm not going to feel crappy about myself, right? Um, I'm going to. It's going to be great. <laughs> it's so great. <laughs> I'm still waiting. Um, <laughs> but I think one thing that we that helps, first of all, is to notice, right? I don't like these things about myself, and I am big into rejecting these things because, you know, they make me uncomfortable. I'm embarrassed by them. I regret them. Oh, I can't believe I said that. How do I fix this? Right? A human being among human beings. But the first step really is to, and this is something that I think happens spontaneously, but it, but practice really helps, is to keep hearing a teaching, which my teacher really had to like. Where's my stick? Where it is? It's in back. Behind me. Right? You know, this is like her constant admonition to me was welcome these aspects of you. Right? Welcome them. They are part of you. Where we get where we suffer is when we reject anything, right? When we say, I don't want this, you know, I, I don't like this, I wish it were different. It's, that's dukkha right there, right? Get it, having what you don't want and not having what you do want. So it has to extend also to those parts of ourselves that we don't like. And she would say, 
you know, to me, she would, like, I'd be sitting opposite her and she would say, you know, how can I support you? She, and she wasn't saying, you know, from teacher to student. She was like trying to be me. How can I support you, stinky, terrible thing that I hate, you know? <laughs> how can I embrace you? How can I welcome you? And I remember just being so mad. It's like, it's like, no, 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 I don't want these things, right? I thought I, I, thought I was gonna get, I was gonna get enlightened and it was all gonna be cool, right? So, like, you can offer the compassion that you might offer another person. It's okay, you know, oh, don't worry. I still love you, right? I love you just the way you are. And you could use a little improvement, said Suzuki Roshi, right? Right? But the improvement comes when we stop struggling. And then those parts of ourselves that are difficult and unskilled tend to fade a little bit. Because right? we are awake and we can say, oh, I see you. Hi, my old friend, you know, impatience. Right? And don't let them take over. Don't let those things take over. Don't let them become everything that you are. Anybody online with a question? I only see one. I only see one person. Hello, Karen. <laughs> Maybe that's enough. Thank you all so much. Hope to see you at times in practice period.